You know, I love David. David is not only a great singer, but also a man who communicates the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The priests of Medjugorje have asked him to stay in the village for a few months this summer, and what a blessing for all of us. He definitely carries you right in the heart of the Queen of Peace. He's himself a peacemaker, a carrier of peace, and I'm so happy that he agreed to share with us today his most incredible story. David Parks. What a joy it is to be here. What a great privilege it is to be here. We're going to have a wonderful weekend. Amen? Hands up those of you who have ever seen me before, who have seen me before, who have never seen me before, who couldn't care less if they ever see me again. There's always two. Always two. But ladies and gentlemen, the time is very precious. And what I want you to do this weekend, I want you to leave all your problems outside the auditorium, okay? You've made a mess all week of trying to look after them. You can't cope with your problems. So for the next two days and the remaining hours of today, when you come to the auditorium, leave them out there. Just tell Jesus, look, you look after them. Because I would like you to experience the peace that can only come from Jesus. The peace that can only come from Jesus. But I wasn't always very peaceful. Actually, you know, I wasn't the man that I am today. And here's a little story just to prove it to you. Seven years ago, I was invited to Rochester, New York to give a concert. The concert was to take place on Monday night, but the pastor had never heard of me before. And the only reason he allowed me to come visit was because the ladies from the rosary group put Father under pressure. So Father said that I could come on one condition, and that was that I had to come in a day early, which was Sunday. I had to join Father for Mass at 12 o'clock, and then after Mass, Father was going to take me out to lunch. So at 11.45 on Sunday morning, the car drove outside the rectory door, and as it did, the door flew open. Father came charging out and said, Oh, David, I have an apology to make to you. I said, me, Father? He said, I said, we've never met. But he said we had a slight typographical error on the flyer that went out telling people of your arrival in the parish. I said, Father, don't worry. Everybody spells my name wrong. They always leave the E in Parks out. Oh, he said, no, David, we got the E in Parks in, all right. But do you know the part in the literature that says, David Parks, Irish, international, professional singer. I said, Father, of course I do. I wrote that myself. But he said, no, David, it didn't read like that. I said, well, what do you mean, Father? So he said it went, David Parks, Irish, international, professional, S-I-N-N-E-R. And the church was packed. They all came to see this professional sinner. And at the end of the concert, I said to Father, what were you worried about? You got me exactly right. I am a sinner. But my story starts in 1977. 
at the age of 27. I was married to Anne, and we had two beautiful children, Lorna and Ken, the youngest of whom, Ken, was born with an incurable illness called cystic fibrosis. I was playing soccer professionally. I had the great honor of playing for my country and the great distinction of having played against some of the greatest soccer players in the world, including the legendary Brazilian player, Pele. In January of 1977, I won a major talent contest and a very bright future in show business was facing me. But in the second week of April 1977, my whole world was shattered. I was struck down with an illness called Crohn's disease. Now Crohn's disease is one of the most debilitating illnesses that the medical people have to deal with. And basically it affects you in three ways. First of all, you have this dreadful gripping pain in your stomach. And this pain can get so intense that at certain times you literally have to lie down. It didn't matter where you were to try and get relief from the pain. Secondly, every time you would eat, you felt nauseous. And thirdly, you had constant diarrhea. So the first thing that a Crohn sufferer did when he went out to socialize was to find the nearest bathroom because that's where you spend most of your time. Over the first six weeks of diagnosis, I had a dramatic loss of weight. I was 220 pounds in weight playing soccer and in those six weeks went down to 99 pounds in weight. Over the next 12 years, I had eight major surgeries for the illness. Now that brings us right up to Christmas Eve 1988. And on Christmas Eve 1988, I had my ninth surgery. It was unsuccessful. They had to repeat the surgery again two weeks later, which was the 7th of January 1989. And after an 11-hour surgery, the surgeon went to the waiting room where my wife Anne was waiting. And he told her that he had some bad news. He told her that in his opinion, I had weeks left to live. So poor Anne was devastated and she said to the surgeon, I couldn't possibly tell David that news. So the following day he arrived into my room and stood at the end of the bed and said, David, I have some bad news. I've done everything that I can possibly do for you. In my opinion, you have maybe 12 or 14 weeks to live. I was shattered. I remembered I started to cry and I cried and cried all day long. And there were two main reasons. The first one was to do with Ken. At that time in our life, we were trying to give Ken a better quality of life. We were trying to treat each day that Ken was alive as if it was the last day of his life. And I felt that if I died, it would put a huge strain on Anne because Anne would have to go out to work and support the family. But the second reason is a stupid reason. But you know, it's surprising what goes through your mind when you're confronted with a situation as the surgeon confronted me with. And this was to do with money. In 1982, I had become a professional sinner, a singer. And when you don't work, you don't earn 
any money. And because I'd been in and out of hospital so often, we as a family were now in serious financial difficulties. But I was very fortunate. I had my own band in Dublin, affiliated to the largest hotel in the city. And once the band discovered our needs, they decided that they'd run a benefit concert. And all the monies they would get from the sale of admission tickets, they would give it to Anne and I to help with our expenses. But when they went out selling tickets to their friends, they told them it was for my funeral expenses. Well, I was discharged from hospital five weeks after the last surgery, and then a week afterwards was the concert night. And the band insisted that Anne and I must go to the concert. So if you can visualize, I'm about 100 pounds in weight. I'm stooped over from the two surgeries. I can't stand up properly. I can't walk, so I used to just shuffle along. And my cheekbones were beginning to protrude through the skin of my cheeks. And my eyes were sunken in their sockets. And I was this awful gray pallor. And you see, I would know probably 75% of the people who are going to attend the concert. And this is where pride comes into the story. I did not want all my friends to see me in this dreadful, pitiful state. So on the night of the concert, the band sent a car around to the house and Anne and I were taken to the venue and we did great night's entertainment. And at the end of the evening, I was shuffling from table to table, just thanking people for supporting my family, when a man walked up behind me and he tapped me on the shoulders and said, David, we met about 12 years ago. I'm sorry to hear that your illness has persisted, but my business partner and I are here this evening. We run a travel agency. We specialize in sending people to Medjugorje. And we'd like to offer your wife, Anne, and you a free week's pilgrimage. Now that stopped me right in my tracks because I knew where Medjugorje was. Only because Anne and I, we'd spent our honeymoon in Dubrovnik in 1972. And over the subsequent years, anything that was written up in the newspapers appertaining to the former Yugoslavia, Anne always drew it to my attention. But what was happening in Medjugorje meant nothing to me because God and I had parted company. I made a conscious decision in 1982 to put God totally out of my life. But I wanted to go back to Dubrovnik. In the five weeks that I lay in hospital after the surgery, Every day that Anne would come and visit, and after we'd exchanged our little pleasantries, the little pecks on the cheek, I would always turn to her and say, Anne, I would love to go back to Dubrovnik, knowing that our financial situation would never allow it to happen. So, the decision and the choice I had to make was, do I go with 165 religious maniacs on pilgrimage? Or do I go on what would probably be my last holiday on earth? So I took my last holiday on earth. So we were due to go 
to Medjugorje the last week of April in the company of a wonderful priest from Chicago called Father Peter Mary Rookie. And as a lot of you know, Father Rookie is the most gentle, beautiful, kind-hearted man you could meet. But when I met him at Dublin Airport, it was awful. Because as I shook hands with Father Rookie, as our hands clasped, I felt threatened by him. Because an aura of love came from Father Rookie at me. And the last thing you want when you're away from the church is an aura of love to come at you, especially from a priest. So I insulted him. I called him all the names I could possibly think of. I insulted him so much that the people from the travel agency said only I was in the departure area, they would not have allowed me to go on pilgrimage. So, we arrived in Dubrovnik at 8 o'clock in the morning after a five-hour delay in Dublin. Beautiful sunshine. I'm in a lot of pain. We go through emigration and then we're assigned our buses to take us the three-hour bus ride to Medjugorje and because it's three hours they break the journey in two so we stopped along the way at a little fishing village I was in so much pain I had to visit the bathroom I was violently sick when I came out of the bathroom it was time for us to get back on the bus to take us the remaining part of the journey and as soon as the bus pulled away from the little restaurant that's where all my trouble started. We had a beautiful young girl. She was a tour director and she'd spoken very briefly to us on the first part of the journey but as soon as the bus moved away she got up from her seat. She walked up to the front of the bus and she took the microphone in her hand and said, ladies and gentlemen, we are approximately one hour from Medjugorje and I would like us all to recite the rosary. I went berserk. I'm sitting on the aisle seat and is on the inside. I have a metal case on my knee which there's a video camera and I'm banging the video camera up and down. I'm turning to Anne and saying, I told you I didn't want to know anything about religion and here is this girl and she's praying at me. So Anne went right into my ribs and shut. will you ever shut up you're making a show of yourself you're making a spectacle of me but the agitation it burned and burned inside me so much so I hadn't realized the bus had stopped in Medjugorje the first thing that I was aware of was my name being called out Mr. and Mrs. David Parks so I grabbed onto the seat and I pulled myself up and I leaned forward you know just to look around Anne to look out the window of the bus to see where my hotel was. <laughs> Wrong! There are no hotels in Medjugorje. You stay in the local people's houses. Only my house wasn't fully built. There's no roof on my house. And I protest, I said, excuse me, my house has no roof on it. And she says to me, oh, it will next year when you come back. 
so that annoyed me so I walked down the bus down the three steps and of course I'm so weak I can't carry a suitcase and my wife has to carry two heavy suitcases down a cattle path to a partially built house we knock on the door a beautiful young mother opened the door with a three-month-old baby in her arms she took me down through a series of corridors to reveal the smallest room I've ever been in twin beds between the beds a table half the width of the music stand there's no place to hang your clothes during the day you put your suitcases on the bed and you walked down the six feet by two feet little gap. At nighttime, when you wanted to go to bed, you took the suitcases off the bed, you put them on the floor, you stepped over them, and you got into bed. But what I was really, really looking for was my own private bathroom. So I looked around the other three walls and no bathroom, no door leading. So I said to the lady, uh, excuse me, bathroom? And she says, follow me down another series of corridors and she reveals a tiny bathroom with just a shower no shower curtain toilet bowl and a hand basin and I'm standing there in agony and I turn to her and said excuse me how many bathrooms do you have and she says oh two how many people are staying in your house and she said oh 16 but I said, I need a bathroom to myself. I'm very ill. The doctors say I have maybe two weeks to live. And she says, oh no, you share with everybody else. At that point, I threw my hands up in the air. I said to Anne, that's it. This place is annoying me. I'm in a lot of pain and I'm going to bed. Tomorrow morning when I get up, I'm packing my bag and I'm off to Dubrovnik. Seven o'clock the following morning. Anne wakes me up. David, I couldn't sleep last night. Why, Anne? Well, you see, you want to go to Dubrovnik today. And that means when I go home, I will have to tell lies to the people from the travel agency as to why you won't stay in Medjugorje. I said, Anne, don't tell lies. Tell them the truth. I'm not interested. But she said, Father Rookie, he's saying Mass in the church this morning. And you see, if you come with me to Mass, it means that I will be able to go home, put my hand on my heart, and in all honesty say to the people from the travel agency, well, look, David did go to Mass that Father Peter said. Unfortunately, I was still half asleep. I couldn't think of an answer to disagree with that. I actually thought that that statement was quite logical. So I boxed myself into a corner to go to Mass in English at 10 o'clock. So at 9.30 we left the house and I struggled up the short distance to the Church of St. James in the back door of the church. The church was quite full, so Anne and I came down the outside. We managed to get in at the end of a seat, and on the inside, and again, me being the proper gentleman that I am, sitting on the outside. Anne kneels down, she starts to pray. I sat there staring blankly at the floor, and then I became conscious of somebody standing beside me. And as I looked, there were two old ladies. And as I looked into the eyes of the first old lady, she had these two big pleading eyes pleading for my seat and I quickly went oh God oh they were probably the only prayers I said all day oh God oh God 
and I was more conscious of her being there. Now when I looked, her eyes were the full size of her face. And I know that look. And did you ever notice that they never say anything to you? They just smile at you and nod their head. No, it's Sunday, you know. That's all it takes. So I turned to her and said, hey, Anne, look, let the two old ladies sit down. Mass is only going to be 20 minutes. An hour and a half later, the priest gave us a final blessing. I'm standing in the aisle in agony. The beads of perspiration from the pain are flowing down my brow. The only interest I had in mass that day was I counted every piece of stained glass on the left-hand side of the Church of St. James. There were 16 candles at the back of the altar. There were 14 priests and Father Rookie, nowhere to be seen. I was conned into going to Mass. So I turn in disgust and I'm, I'm heading out the back door of the church and now I've lost Anne, I can't find her. And I'm just about to go down the six steps when I hear, David, wait, wait. And as I turn, Anne is coming running from the door of the church. And she says, David, Father Rookie is having a healing service up in the graveyard. And I said, well, you know, Anne, if he has a few miracles up there today, he'll do very well. I said, I like the way he was supposed to say mass this morning. Look, she said, David, as you and I argue, Father Rookie's on his way up. I said, Anne, I don't care. I'm going to Dubrovnik. And I went to shuffle past her. And as I did, she just stood in front of me and said, look, David, on our children's lives, I promise you, if you come with me to the healing service, as soon as it's over, I'll go back to the house. I'll pack the bags and we're off to Dubrovnik. Hallelujah. The words I was waiting to hear. So we turned and we walked along the back of the church of St. James. Then we turned left up along the side of the church, up through the vineyards. And as you walk through the vineyards, the first thing you see is a tall group of trees. And as you get to the trees, directly behind the trees, there's a small little burial chapel. There were 600 people in this graveyard and they were standing around a paved area, maybe half the size of the stage area here, with nobody standing directly in front of the little burial chapel. So they just stood on three sides, one, two, and three. And in the middle was Father Rookie, with, as it turned out to be three Irish priests. And he was giving them a, a little blessing. And Father Rookie's like lightning. Now you see him, now you don't, he was gone. And he was over by the first person standing beside the wall of the chapel. And as he did, a lady stepped out of the crowd. She had a glass bowl in her hand in which there was anointing oil. So she went over and stood beside Father Peter. And he dipped his thumb in the oil. He put the sign of the cross on the forehead. Hand on head, started to pray. And then that person fell backwards to the ground. Second person, thumb in the oil, sign of the cross, had a At this point, my voice came back and I turned to her and said, Anne, this is hysteria. Anne said to me through her clenched teeth, David, if you don't go away, I'll hit you with the video camera. So I left. So I came back 10 minutes later and I stood beside her.
and she turned and said to me, David, will you have a blessing? And I went, <laughs> me, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I have no time for the religious maniacs that we're with. But she said, David, it'll do you good. I said, Anne, you just leave me alone. And I left. And I came back 10 minutes later and again I stood beside her. And again she turned and said to me, David, will you have a blessing? This David, will you have a blessing, went on for two solid hours until the white flag of surrender came out. I couldn't take this constant badgering of having a blessing. So I reluctantly agreed to stand in line with about 100 people to receive the blessing. Now by this time, the three Irish priests, they're working in front of Father Rookie. They come along, they bless me in turn. I'm standing there, I'm bored out of my mind. I'm looking at my watch, I'm trying to gauge, oh God, how long more am I going to be standing here? And as I look up from my watch, the Rookie priest is in front of me. He said to me, David, there's something you want to tell me. I said, Father, I don't wish to speak with you. I'm very ill. The doctors say I have maybe two weeks to live. So with that, he reached into his pocket and he took out his black crucifix, which is about the size of the span of my hand. And his crucifix contains seven relics of the seven founders of the Servite order, the servants of Mary. And he placed the crucifix in my right hand. Dipped his thumb in the oil, he put the sign of the cross on my forehead, put his hands on my head, and remember him starting to pray. And then I remember him going to take the crucifix from my hand. And then the next thing I remember is. <laughs> I'm lying flat on my back. And as I open my eyes, I'm looking up into the face of a very famous Irish politician who was out with us on the pilgrimage. And as they say, I knew him from a previous life because he was involved in the music industry. And the first thought that went through my mind is, oh God, what's he going to go back to Dublin? Tell all these hardened, drinking musicians about Parks lying on his back in a graveyard. So I got up off the ground sheepishly and I'm just dusting the earth off my clothes and I took two paces back to him and I said to him, Donny, who hit me? He said, Parks, he said, the spirit is with you very strongly. You've been out for 20 minutes. But in all the confusion, I hadn't realized that there was an intense burning heat in my body. It went from the top of my head to the tips of my toes. I have never, ever experienced such a sensation prior to Medjugorje or since Medjugorje. But from that day to this, all the aches, all the pains associated with Crohn's disease have totally disappeared. Two days after returning from Medjugorje, I have an appointment with my surgeon. As I walk through the door of his office, he gets the surprise of his life. He says to me, David, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. He said, there are certain things in this life that we in the medical profession cannot comprehend. One such thing is what's happened to you. But he says, I want you to come into hospital. I want to carry out a series of tests just to see at what stage your illness is at. I entered hospital. They carried out their week of exhaustive tests. 
Ten days later, he phoned, he called to say, David, there is no sign of Crohn's disease in your body. It has totally disappeared. But that wasn't the miracle of Medjugorje. The miracle of Medjugorje took place two days later. I had the most incredible spiritual healing. At that time in my life, I was a very troubled young man. The weight of having this child born to us with cystic fibrosis weighed very heavily on my shoulders. It caused a lot of tension within my marriage. So much so that in the second week of August 1987, I left Dan and the children, causing a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. I got involved in another relationship, but in November, the children were having a particularly bad time. So I decided I would go home for their sake and maybe things might improve between Anne and myself. But they didn't. In the second week of January 1988, I left Anne and the children for the second time. This time causing twice as many problems as it did on the first occasion. And when I left home, I had no place to stay. I used to sleep in the car park of the hotel that I played in. I stayed with family members and friends, anybody who would give me shelter for the night. And then one day in June, I went to visit with Anne and the children. And as I walked through the front door of our home, Anne pushed me into the family room and she closed the door behind us. And she stood up against the door so that the children couldn't come in. And she said to me, David, why won't you come home? So a few days later, I returned home and things improved a little bit between us. And then as I told you earlier in the story, on Christmas Eve 88, I had to have the surgery all over again for the illness. But how the healing took place was, after the physical healing, the desire to leave Medjugorje had gone. All of a sudden, the backward, tumble-down little village was holding something very dear for me. And Anne and I used to spend most of her time either in the Church of St. James or sitting on the pews or the benches outside, just listening to people sharing stories. And it was like as if the only word that I could hear was peace. Peace. The peace that I needed so badly in my life. And the people said that they were experiencing this peace up on the hill of the alleged first apparition of her blessed mother called Potbordeaux. And I asked Anne if she would help me to climb this mountain. So we set off one afternoon from the church of St. James, again up through the vineyards, up to the small little village of Biakavici. And then you start climbing the bare mountain. 20 minutes you climb steadily and then you turn into the right into a vast clearing on the side of the mountain. There were 2,000 people there praying, singing, meditating. And the only place Anne and I could get was right on the very edge of the mountain. There was a big rock and Anne sat on the rock. And I stood beside her and as I looked into the, into the valley below, I can honestly say to you that for the first time in my life, I recognized the beauty of God's creation. And I felt the urge to pray, but I couldn't. I tried to say the Hail Mary, I couldn't. I tried to say the Our Father, I couldn't. 
And then I got agitated because I couldn't pray. And at that point, Anne, who was sitting on the rock, she was observing me and she assumed that I was getting bored. When she saw me getting agitated, she assumed that I'd had too much religion for one day. And she stood to speak with me. And as she stood up, I just caught a glimpse of her out of the corner of my eye. And I instinctively turned to her. I outstretched my arms and I embraced her. And I apologized to her for all the hurt that I'd caused her, all the pain and suffering I'd caused our children, our parents, family members and friends. And Anne started to cry. And as she started to cry, she embraced me. And because of that little gesture of love, I started to cry. And we cried in one another's arms for about 10 minutes. But when I stopped crying, I had this most incredible inner peace. An inner peace that seemed to allow me, David Parks, to live with myself. And you know, I honestly feel that if we don't have that inner peace, it is impossible to converse with anybody else. The graces that I received in Medjugorje have stayed with me to this very day. And you know, if Jesus stood beside me now and said, look, David, I want to put you to the test. I put you back in the mental state that you were in in 1989. I will inflict a physical ailment on you and I will offer you one healing. Which one is it to be? There would be no hesitation. It would have to be the spiritual healing. I could take any form of physical ailment that Jesus wanted to give me. I would accept it as a form of penance for all the wrongs that I've done in my life. But I could not be without the love of Jesus in my life. It has transformed my whole life. It's given me a whole new meaning to life, a whole new will to live life. But most important of all, a will to live life the way that Jesus wants me to live it. Not David Parks to live David Parks' own form of religion. It took about six months before my tummy muscles were healed enough to allow me to go back singing. And then about a year later, I was asked to make a Christian album. And that gave me huge problems. Because the last time I'd sung Christian music was when I was 12 years of age. As a member of the local boys choir in the Church of St. Paul of the Cross in downtown Dublin. And one evening, Anne and I were at home. We were trying to remember some of the old hymns we used to sing as children. So that it would make it easy for me when I went into the recording studio. And one night... I remember that the second time that Anne and I visited the Hill of Apparitions, it was one o'clock in the morning. There were just four of us on the mountainside. And again, we stood very close to where we'd been on the first occasion, with the exception of total darkness. And as I looked to the right, the twin spires of the Church of St. James were lit up by the floodlights. And I felt the urge to pray. But I couldn't. And then I just burst into song. This evening, I would like to share that song with you. It's a song in praise of our Blessed Mother. And this evening, I would like to dedicate it 
to our Blessed Mother. In thanksgiving for her interceding with her son Jesus on my behalf. And it's Schubert's Ave Maria. so sorry. Because of the copyright, we had to cut out the rest of this song, and it's kind of frustrating. But there's good news. You can listen to this beautiful song and also Let Me Live, among many others, on David's CD. For the same reasons, we can offer you an a cappella version of Let Me Live, here, without the full orchestration. David's CD is available from Irish Records International, P.O. Box, 626, Pembroke, P-E-M-B-R-O-K-E, Massachusetts, 02359, telephone 781-293-6200, fax number 781-293-6425. Now the website is irishrecords.com. And now, let's go back to David's story. God bless you. In Medjugorje, after the incredible week that I had, I made a pledge to our Lord and our Blessed Mother that I would go back home to Ireland and try and have a beautiful pro-life song recorded called Let Me Live. So I went home and then the record people all over Ireland told me, hey, that song will ruin your career. They told me that no record company would ever record the song because they did not want their record companies associated with such a controversial subject. Thirdly, they said, well, look, you know, if there is some lunatic out there who would record it for you, no radio station in the world had ever played for you. Yet this is the song that Mother Teresa 
asked me to sing for her when she came to visit Ireland in June of 1993. And Mother Lord Rester asked me to sing this song for her at Knock, our own Marian apparition shrine. And when Mother Lord Rester came to visit, she absolutely captivated the media. Everywhere that she went, the TV cameras were either a pace in front of her or behind her. She captivated the media so much that our national television station decided at two days notice to send its largest ever outside broadcast unit from the east coast to the west to cover mother's visit live on television. 50,000 people turned up at knock and as I stood up in the basilica to sing for her because it was going out live on television let we live went into every household in Ireland. The following day, the radio stations get requests, play the song about the babies that was sung for Mother Teresa. There are 22 radio stations in Ireland, all frequently playing Let Me Live, and as you can all see, it has ruined my career. And, and all this beautiful song does is puts a thought in your mind. And that thought starts off with the word, maybe. Maybe I'll have eyes of blue. Or maybe I could look like you. Or maybe I'm a little boy. Or maybe I could be a king to save the world from greater sin. It's the plaintive cry of the unborn baby in the womb to its mother, asking to be given one of the greatest gifts of all, the gift of life. There are seven-year-old toddlers here in America who owe their life to this song. The record company has received documentations from mothers who were going to abort their babies, but somehow somebody gave them a copy of this song. They listened, they relented, and they gave their babies that most incredible gift of life. God bless you. This is Let Me Live. There will be no dawn or sunset for this child to see. For today, his short existence will have ceased to be. Unborn, unknown and undefended. For it has been decided that his life should be ended. But in my dreams, I can hear him say, please let me live. Please let me stay. Maybe I'll have eyes of blue and hair of gold so softly curled. Maybe I could look like you. Please let me see this great big world. Maybe I'm a little boy with laughing eyes and tears of joy. 
Someone who'll be there to smile when you can say twas all worthwhile. Please let me live to share with you. Be there with you when sorrow comes. Please let me live to cry with you. For all of us tomorrow comes. Maybe I could be a king to save the world from greater sin. Do you think I'm just a friend? To die for you, is this the end? Lonely beats this heart of mine, but sure we'll meet somewhere sometime. Thought perhaps you'd say hello. I know you'll never let me go. Please let me live to share with you. Be there with you when sorrow comes. Please let me to laugh with you for all